Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and thanks for listening to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm David Gottlieb. My guest today is David I. Shiavitz, Associate Professor of History and of Jewish and Israel Studies at Northwestern University. In his new book, A Remembrance of His Wonders, Nature and the Supernatural in Medieval Ashkenaz from the University of Pennsylvania Press, Professor Shiavitz argues that contrary to prevailing perceptions, the medieval German pietists, the Hasidei Ashkenaz, who flourished in the Rhineland and Regensburg during the 12th and 13th centuries, saw the natural world and the human body as suffused with theological meaning. Professor Shaivitz marshals compelling evidence to show that the pietists submitted the natural world and the human body to close and careful empirical study, and that while they were fascinated by inexplicable phenomena, the supernatural and even bodily effluvia, this fascination was due to their unsinting efforts to forge links between the natural order and their theological worldview. Professor Shaivitz, thanks for joining me to talk about your book. Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure. So tell us uh, about the focus of your academic work and about the research uh, and the personal interests that led to this book. So my work in general focuses on the intellectual and the cultural history of Jews, uh, especially in medieval Europe. Um, I think in, in, in some ways uh, I had been planning to write this book or a book like it for a very long time, long before I even realized that uh, that, that was the direction I was heading in. Um, you know, my, my interest uh, has always strangely focused on the kind of marginal and, uh, and, and strange-seeming um, phenomena that medieval Jews, I think, took for granted, but that today seem very... Uh, puzzling and even threatening. Uh, so things that we tend to group under the rubric of the supernatural, monsters and demons and ideas about uh, otherworldly uh, sort of locations that we don't have access to. Uh, even from a young age, uh, I you know grew up going to uh, uh, Jewish day school and studying rabbinic texts from a sort of you know early stage in my life. And the parts that always were the most puzzling and the most sort of provocative to me were the ideas that really seemed very difficult to square with uh, the more conventional Jewish law and biblical interpretation. Um, and so, uh, you know, having a chance to actually plumb those uh, ideas in some depth and to try to figure out what was it about the supernatural, about the monstrous, about the aberrant that mm-hmm. got medieval Jews so excited, um, it really was a fun opportunity for me, and, uh, and I really enjoyed working on it. Interesting. So you, um, you in the book, you upend some uh, regnant assumptions about the Hasidic Ashkenaz, and you also shed new light on the extent to which they were and were not separate and distinct from not only from Sephardic Jewry, but also from their Christian neighbors. Can you tell us uh, a bit about what your research uncovered in this regard and how you cover it in the book? Sure. So, you know, just for the benefit of people, which I assume is, is many people who don't have, uh, you know, intimate familiarity with the Hasidei Ashkenaz, with the German pietists, this is a group of sort of moralists and mystics um, who 
very briefly exploded onto the scene in Ashkenazic culture um, in the Rhine Valley and, and in Regensburg during the late 12th and early 13th centuries. And they're associated with figures like uh, Rabbi Yehuda Hasid, Judah the Pious, and his student uh, Elazar of Worms. And there are a few other named figures that we know. Um, and to the extent that people have studied their ideas about nature and about the body, it has, you know, for, for a very long time been taken for granted that they represented kind of the worst of the popular folk uh, superstitious worldview of medieval Europe. Uh, and so they had all these very strange ideas. Uh, you know, maybe we'll have a chance to talk about some of them, but mm-hmm. we're, the existence of werewolves and of demons and uh, strange and wondrous animals and amulets and magical spells and all sorts of things uh, that struck earlier scholars as very uh, off-putting. Uh, and so the assumption was that this was basically a direct penetration of Germanic folk culture, of sort of the low-level, uh, non-intellectual uh, cultural surrounding, uh, and that we need to sort of bracket all of that off, um, or that at, at, at best we can sort of engage with it on its own level. But, you know, scholars until very recently have still been talking about this as sort of uh, superstition and as something that's uh, that's very uh, sort of problematic from a, a more high-level theological perspective. Mm-hmm. And what I try to do in the book is to show that, in fact, if we take medieval intellectual culture on its own terms, uh, a lot of those interests were not things that stood in opposition to the sort of disciplined study of nature. Uh, But they, in fact, were the disciplined study of nature. If you wanted to understand the human body and its outer limits, so looking at monstrous uh, human bodies or human bodies that turn into animals uh, or demonic bodies, those are all ways that you can gain access to a certain kind of uh, vaunted um, and I would say highly abstract and elite um, intellectual perspective on, on the connections between the natural world and, and God and theology. Uh, and the same is the case with a lot of the other subject matter in the book. If we look at the Christian context, so we find that many of the scientists, the philosophers, the theologians are grappling in very abstract, uh, in very, uh, I should say, fine-grained detail with some of these questions that to us seem a little bit uh, you know, strange, but that at the time were, were profoundly uh, significant. And so when we see Ashkenazic Jews doing the same thing, I think we shouldn't be looking for connections to sort of what the superstitious common folk at the time were doing. We, in fact, should be looking at how much interpenetration there was between Jewish learned culture and Christian learned culture. And so what I try to do in the book is show that in many, many cases, we can find really direct and sort of startling parallels between the kinds of questions that Jews were asking and the kinds of questions that Christians were asking and the way in which both of them were trying to use what they knew about the natural world uh, as a means of uh, sort of getting at deeper theological truths. Professor Shaivitz, so one question is uh, how much of our traditional perception of the Hasidei Ashkenaz is due to our own epistemological presuppositions about what constitutes knowledge uh, empirical knowledge and research, and what constitutes superstition and magic? So it's a great question, and I think you're right on the money. Uh, you know, today we take it for granted that there's something called magic, and it's maybe not always clear what that is, and there's something called science or philosophy, um, and whatever, however we define each of those terms, they clearly are not the same as one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the assumption that animated um, Jewish scholars for a very long time. Actually, if we go back to the origins of you know, sort of critical Jewish historiography in the 19th century, in the Wissenschaft des Judentums movement, the sort of science of Judaism 
um, approach to uh, studying the Jewish past. So ironically, many of those scholars were themselves German or of Ashkenazi descent, um, and they were profoundly interested in highlighting the contributions that Jews had made to exactly those modern epistemological categories of science and philosophy and sort of learned culture. And so when they looked back at their past and they saw all of this, what they considered to be magic and superstition, so they really shunned it or they dismissed it and they tended to... Uh, not prize, you know, that sort of Germanic background, but actually to, and you know, this is something that a lot of recent scholars have 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 uh, have been um, have been illustrating. They tried to um, present Sephardic Jewry as actually the sort of forerunners of their own interests and of their own desire to integrate into society. And again, when we look back to the Middle Ages itself, so those epistemological divisions, I think, really begin to fall apart, um, or maybe to even be effaced completely. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the great examples of this, the sort of classic work for medieval studies uh, that began to really show just how extensive the interpenetration between science and magic was, was a multi-volume work by Lynn Thorndike, an eminent medievalist, uh, in which he uh, surveyed magic and experimental science. And those two things went together. Experimental mm-hmm. science and magic were two sides of the same coin or even the same side of the same coin. Um, because the way that magic was assumed to operate was by trial and error or by traditions that are passed down through the generation. Uh, and experimental science emerges almost as an outgrowth or as a counterpart to that. Now, of course, since Thorndike, scholars have done a lot to debate his claims and to refine them. But I think the key insight that magic is not something that is opposed to science, but that in the Middle Ages, these were two things that didn't always go hand in hand, but certainly could go hand in hand. So that's a finding that has not always been applied to the Jewish sources as extensively as I think it should have been. And in the case of Ashkenazic Jewry in particular, it's something that, um, you know, I think really needs to be uh, to be emphasized if we want to really understand where these thinkers were coming from. And where did this uh, fascination with uh, strange creatures and with uh, uh, the dark and mysterious and with the bodily and the effluvial, where did this come from? So for each specific case, I think we could provide, you know, a specific genealogy of where the ideas came from. And, and this is something I try to do in the different chapters of the book to show that in some cases there are very direct corollaries between what's going on in the Jewish sources in the Middle Ages and what's going on in the Christian sources. So a kind of a horizontal um, you know, uh, comparison where things in different cultures at the same time period are determinative. In other cases, you can find uh, the roots of some medieval beliefs in classic rabbinic works. Um, so, you know, in the case of demons in particular, uh, the Talmud and rabbinic literature is full of demons, and they play a really extensive role. And, you know, to me, it was always a surprisingly extensive role. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, that was the part where you really sat up and took notice in in day school, right? Yes, yeah, so, you know it's, it's funny. I remember, I remember in uh, I was when I was in eighth grade uh, in in you know in Orthodox Jewish day school, we studied the tenth chapter of, of Tractate Psachim of the Babylonian Talmud, which mm-hmm. is the section of the Talmud that describes how to conduct a Passover seder, and it's very detailed. And we have the four cups of wine and all the different uh, things that make their way onto the seder plate. And then somewhere in the middle of the chapter, there's a long digression about demons and how they might attack you if you drink a certain number of cups of wine and the certain kinds of pairings. And then it goes right back to the more traditional or what seems to us now to be the more traditional Talmudic contents. And and at the time, 
I wanted to know more about, you know, those demons. And uh, the assumption was, well, okay, this isn't really important. This isn't really part of the rabbinic heritage that we need to be focusing on. Um, But again, in some cases, by the Middle Ages, they have imbibed those sources and they know them really well and they're really interested in them. And they're trying to plumb them for real deep theological uh, depth. So, you know, in, in some cases we can find earlier roots in Jewish sources. In some cases we can find contemporary Christians. But I think what they both have in common is that for the German pietists, for the Ashkenazi Jews in the Middle Ages, uh, these kinds of concerns are not marginal. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wouldn't have thought of them as superstitious necessarily in the way that we use that term in a kind of a derogatory sense. These were more grist for the mill, for the theological mill, and uh, and they were assumed uh, to sort of point to deep theological truths about God, about the natural world, about the human body, and about how all those things related to one another. Uh-huh. Um, and so it really forces us to think about monsters and demons and, and wonders of nature, I think, from a very different kind of perspective. Did they see the human body and the human soul as coextensive with nature or as a thing apart or as things apart? So to a certain degree, I think the answer is yes and yes. Um, you know, sometimes it's hard to nail down very precise dichotomies. Um, in, in the book, in, in two of the chapters in the middle of the book, what I try to show is that actually the animating uh, metaphor that they use um, for the human body and also for the soul is they discuss humanity or, or individual human beings as an olam katan, mm-hmm. um, a, a, a world in miniature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that phrase itself is a rabbinic phrase. It goes very far back in, in rabbinic tradition. But what they do with it in the Middle Ages um, is not necessarily a simple correspondence where sort of, you know, uh, the body equals the world and the soul therefore equals God, which is a set of correspondences that are very common in other kinds of Jewish writings from different periods. What they do is they argue that in the same way that God infuses the natural world, God is present in a certain sense within nature um, not in a pantheistic way, but in what scholars call a panentheistic way, mm-hmm. where God is identical, uh, is, is sort of imbued within nature, but not strictly identical with it. Um, similarly, the human soul is itself corporeal in a certain way. It, it pervades the human body. It pervades the, the, the limbs and the organs of the human body. Man ends up being, um, and this is to adopt a phrase that some scholars of the Christian Middle Ages have used, uh, man ends up being a kind of a uh, hylomorphic unity where the body and the soul are actually uh, fused together with one another. We, we don't find in the Jewish writings of, of Ashkenazi Jews, for the most part, a kind of a strict division between body and soul that we're accustomed to thinking about, where, you know, they prized the soul. Medieval people, we tend to think, prized the soul, but they saw the body as, as sort of a drain on man's spirituality. right. right. We find, I think, the opposite, which is that they saw the two of them as being co-terminous in a certain sense, and that means that the human body, and by extension the natural world that it represents, have that kind of divinity imbued within them. Mm-hmm. What uh, what were some of your favorite examples of uh, stories of bodily transformation, and how did you trace the origins of some of those stories and determine sort of their theological significance? So there's one chapter in the book that focuses specifically on bodily transformation, um, and I use um, the case study of werewolves. Um, And this, I think, was my favorite part of the book to work on. It's still the part that um, 
you know, uh, I think has the most uh, resonance for people when they hear about the work. Because um, this is something that we associate with, you know, cheap B-movies or bad TV, right. you know, bad TV uh, melodrama. And what I try to show is that actually it has these very deep roots and that, again, it, 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 it's more significant than we might, than we might think. So for um, this group of Jewish German thinkers, um, werewolves are everywhere. They appear in scriptural exegesis as a way of helping us understand transformations in the Bible. Uh, they appear uh, whenever the word wolf uh, shows up in sort of, you know, sacred sources, they read that as being a gesture to something having to do with, with werewolves and human, uh, human lupine transformation. They use the word transliterated into Hebrew, virvul, very frequently. Wow. Uh, so they know the Germanic term, um, which is circulating at the time. Um, and in some really amazing cases, so they even debate the theological, they directly discuss the theological implications of, of human animal transformation. They say, you know, are werewolves created in God's image. We know that human bodies are reflections of the divine. Uh, God creates man in his image. Well, what about when that human image turns into an animal image? Is, is the wolf still a reflection of God? And they have to sort of grapple with that question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, again, one read would be to say, well, well, these guys really had it bad. You know, They were so superstitious that they saw werewolves behind every letter in, in, in their texts. But when we look at the Christian surroundings, we find that human-animal transformation is a fascinating way that some Christian thinkers are trying to understand the workings of the Eucharist, of the way in which, you know, when, when, when mm. Christians go to, to church, the uh, wafer and, and wine of communion is transformed into God. But it's a strange kind, it's an attenuated transformation, because even though it seems to, it's apparently transforming, uh, according to the theological doctrines, it's really staying the same uh, physically. And so they use werewolves and human-animal transformation as a way of thinking through those those paradoxes or the incarnation, the idea that, you know, Christ turned into a man after he was God or was simultaneously man and God. So there, too, the ability of a human body to turn into an animal body while still retaining some connection to his humanity, it was a useful tool, a cognitive tool that Christians were using. And so, again, I think if we look, if we plug that knowledge into some of these sources, I think that they're really trying to do the same thing. They see the human body as this microcosm, as, as, as uh, packed with theological significance, I think they took for granted that monsters like werewolves existed, but they weren't content to just take that knowledge and sort of let it lay. They needed to probe it. They needed to understand what this did for their theological worldview. And, you know, as I argue in that chapter, um, werewolves and and other monstrous creatures, too, um, are really an object of fascination precisely because of how connected Jews were to sophisticated currents in their contemporary culture and not because they were sort of hiding you know, in superstition and, and occultism. Right. Talk uh, to us a little bit, if you would, about the ascetic practices discussed by the Hasidic Ashkenaz, about their theological significance and about how that spoke to their view of the embodiedness uh, of the soul and their view of the human relationship to the divine. So, again, to just give a little bit of background to those who aren't familiar, you know, for people who do know about German pietism, this tends to that they might have heard of the fact that if you read the pietistic texts, especially their penitential texts, where they describe how to atone for sin, so it's shockingly physical and violent. Um, right. You should, if you commit certain kinds of sins, stick your hand in a beehive or jump into a river and when it's icy and sit there for a while or roll around in the, you know in an anthill 
or and, it, and the examples get more and more extreme. They discuss whether you are allowed to castrate yourself, whether you could kill yourself as a way of atoning for sin. Mm-hmm. And so this has led many people to, I think, a little bit overly simplistically read these kinds of penitential practices as reflecting exactly that kind of disdain for the body that I alluded to earlier in response mm-hmm. to your question. Mm-hmm. Um, they cared about the soul. The body was a drag on the soul. And so punishing the body is a way of sort of killing off your corporeality. Now, I think when we look at the broader contours of, of uh, the ways in which they deal with human embodiedness and uh, embodiment and their, and their concern with the natural world, we find that those penitential practices take on a very different cast. Um, rather than punishing the body as a means of sort of uh, pummeling it into submission, I think the kind of ascetic practices are an example of the way in which they use their body, they use their embodied status as a means towards spiritual elevation. Again, be- precisely because the body and the soul can't ever be distinguished from one another in any kind of a definitive way. So when you torture your body, when you lash yourself, or when you you know, run over your hands with a wagon wheel, or any, any of the other kinds of penances that are described in these kinds of texts, that's you using your body as a means towards spirituality, not in a way that sort of lines up the two as, as antagonistic to, to one another, but precisely as complementary to one another. And, you know, in some of these sources, we find this very explicitly. So there's a fascinating text that was only discovered and published very recently in which one of these authors I mentioned before, Elazar Worms, describes how when the human soul goes to hell on account of it having sinned, the penances that it receives in hell are inflicted on the human body. So the soul in hell is described as having all the characteristics of a body, right? It's lashed on its back or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the different body parts are, are tortured in, in very graphic kinds of ways. And I think asceticism, while you're still alive, is a means of heading off that kind of penance while you're dead. But in both cases, the continuity between body and soul, I think, is is very apparent. How... Uh, influenced were they by Christian penitential practices or the reverse? So that's a great question that's, I think, very hard to answer definitively. From a very early phase in the research on this, on this group of, of, of Jewish thinkers, the Hasidic Ashkenaz, uh, the, penance, the penitential practices were um, put into dialogue with contemporary Christian developments. So Yitzhak Baer, Isaac Baer, one of the great Israeli historians of the 20th century, um, wrote a very famous and influential article in which he argued that the penitential practices and other um, beliefs, too, of the German pietists showed that they were conversant with Franciscanism and with uh, the mendicant orders, uh, which at the time in Europe were spreading and were, um, you know, among other things, uh, contributing to this kind of penitential uh, approach. Now, generations of scholars have debated and disputed, um, you know, Bear's particular take on, on, on the subject, and it's I think ultimately really hard to say whether Jewish thinkers saw some Christian mendicants and then consciously adopted those practices or whether the lines of transmission were more fluid or more uh, sort of inchoate. Mm -hmm. What I think we can say definitively, though, is that if we look at the views of the value of the body among Christian thinkers, including Franciscans and other kinds of mendicants, and then we look at the views of the body in these Jewish thinkers. So the way in which they're thinking about the relationship between the body and the soul is really, if not identical, then very, very close. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the way they operationalize that, right, the way they put that into practice is through ascetic penance, mm-hmm. which uses the body on behalf of 
spirituality. So even if there's not a direct connection between, you know, some flagellants walking through the center of a Jewish town and then Jews adopting that in a kind of a, you know, superficial or straightforward, um, uh, you know, sort of osmosis, I think the underlying values that they would have seen within those practices, I think that's where there's very fruitful and promising comparative work to be done. Right. Now, uh, you mentioned as a child your fascination with this sort of uh, mysterious macabre and the bizarre in terms of uh, bodily transformation. I have to confess um, that around my table uh, growing up, it was always the bodily effluvia. Uh, that came up, if you'll, if you'll pardon the expression. You have a fascinating chapter in the book, the, the fifth and final chapter, called Between Sewer, Synagogue, and Cemetery, and you highlight uh, the pietistic preoccupation, really, with bodily effluvia and excrement, and I wonder what you found out about why they were fascinated with these uh, functions and what sort of spiritual and theological significance they were invested with. Yeah, so this, you know, that chapter, I have to say, you know, for better or worse, that's the one when people hear that I'm working on the theology of excrements, uh, you know, or insert, you know, your four-letter word here. Uh, so that's where people's eyes start to roll, or, you know, it, it takes a certain um, leap of faith to really, uh, you know, assume that there's serious scholarly work to be done there. Um, I think that there is or was. Um Precisely because in the texts of these thinkers, um, in books like uh, Sefer Hasidim, the Book of the Pious in particular, which is sort of the best known work that this group produced, um, so we find this obsessive preoccupation with, we could call it cleanliness or hygiene, with is exactly as you said, excrement and mucus and flatulence and mm-hmm. sort of you name it. Um, Anything that would make a preteen kid giggle, you know, right. uh, is something that right. they are really preoccupied with. And the question for me was why? You know, once you notice that, hey, they're spending a lot of time talking about how much distance you need to place between your outhouse and your Torah scroll or, or, you know, the ethics of detaining somebody when they need to use a restroom or, you know, the precise protocol you should use and you have to blow your nose. So once you notice these things and you see how extensive they are, so the question becomes why? And again here, you know, as, as I understand it, the question of the body and its boundaries is really key. Um, just as a human body, which is divine, you know, but transforms into an animal is something that will raise your theological sort of, you know, eyebrows. Mm-hmm. So, so to the fact that the human body, which is again, imbued with a soul, imbued with divinity, is a reflection of the cosmos but that that human body also excretes and gets filthy and is kind of gross. So that's also a problematic sort of paradox or attention at least. Um, And the way uh, in part that these thinkers try to grapple with that tension is by distancing anything that smacks of divinity from anything that smacks of human Filth, not mm-hmm. anything that smacks of the body, because the body is is reconcilable with divinity. But specifically, the boundaries of the body when they're breached and when the body produces filth. And here too, the Christian context is very useful because the idea that um, the sort of problematic uh, you know, excrement that the body produces is something that needs to be grappled with theologically is something that Christians are spending a lot of time thinking about. Two, for many of the same reasons I alluded to before, when you go to church and take communion 
And then a few hours later, your body excretes the body of God. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very troubling and very problematic. Um, you know, theologians, Christian theologians are spending their time debating to us maybe strange seeming questions, but these were profoundly important questions at the time, like did Christ uh, excrete or, you know, produce bodily uh, functions when he was alive as God and man? Um, and they come up with all kinds of different answers to those questions. But what they have in common is the sense that when the body uh, eliminates waste, it's somehow connected to rot, to decay, and ultimately to death. So, you know, excrement is sort of threatening in the sense that it, 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 it's the non-living parts of you being, uh, being ex- ex- extruded. Um, and the way that oftentimes the German pietists discuss the theological troublingness of excrement is also by linking it to death. And so um, inevitably when the subject of excrement comes up, the subject of eschatology comes up, the resurrection of the dead uh, or the existence of heaven and what kind of bodies are going to end up there. Um, They really use the body's waste products as a way of thinking through what a body is, what its limitations are uh, and what, you know, potentiality there is for, uh, survival beyond embodiedness or maybe for resurrection or for some kind of eschatological, uh, you know, future and, and, and salvation. Now, that's a lot of weight to put on to lowly excrement. But it's interesting but, because uh, in in thinking about asking you about, for example, what enduring influences either in Jewish practice and theology or in Jewish popular culture uh, one could detect from the Hasidic Ashkenaz, you think I think, for example, listening to you talk about this, about Freud. Mm. Uh, Have you detected or does your research lead you to think about what sort of enduring influences of of the thought of the of the Jewish pietists still exists? So it's a really great question. And as of yet, it's not a question that I have a really great answer to. Unfortunately, I think it would require another book or maybe several more books to fully trace this. Um, You know, scholars have known for a while that the penitential practices, at least, of the German pietists really um, sort of took off even after the as the 12th century gave way to the 13th and the 14th and the 15th. Ashkenazic culture continues to sort of valorize this very harsh physical asceticism. Right. Um, We know, though, that oftentimes the underlying meaning of that asceticism has really really changed by the time we make it to the later Middle Ages or to early modernity. So, you know, it's not clear that the sort of sense of the body and the soul as as being two parts of the same whole, that that survives necessarily for much longer than the 13th century, at least in some of these Ashkenazic writings. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think we'd have to do a case-by-case sort of analysis of which doctrines survived, which ones um, you know, continued to evolve or to be shaped through contact with different cultures. Um, the later we go into the later Middle Ages and especially into early modernity, the more contact there is between Ashkenazic texts and ideas and Sephardic ones. So we start to have more penetration into Ashkenazic culture of Maimonidean or rationalist philosophy or of uh, Spanish uh, esotericism, the Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. And so things get messier as time goes on. Um, and I think it would definitely be worthwhile to spend more time tracing, you know, as the centuries progress, which ideas took hold and which ones didn't. Right. Um, right. And I'll, I'll just note one of the fascinating um, 
sort of case studies that one could look at for, for that question is the fact that in the 16th, in the 15th and 16th centuries, a lot of the theological, or I should say the sort of esoteric writings of the German pietists, um, their, their, um, what, what, what are colloquially called their mystical writings, actually are translated into Latin and are read by Christians. So when Christians become interested in Kabbalah, especially in Renaissance Italy, many of the works that they're reading are by Elazar of Worms or oh, people of uh, his school. And so there's a whole Christian reception history of some of these ideas too, right? Not only a Jewish one. Um, and again, I think there's a whole universe of potentially really interesting work that could be done right. um, that would look at some of those later uh, reverberations. What ca- Finally, what can you tell us about the, uh, the projects that you're working on in the future and the direction uh, that your work is taking now that you've completed this project? So right now I'm working on two things, uh, trying to work on two projects simultaneously, um, and each of them I think reflects some of the same kinds of concerns as this book. Um, I've been working for a long time, or I've been interested for a long time in, in a word that I used before, eschatology, I, in theological ideas about what happens either to one's you know identity at the end of their life or what happens at the end of history, mm-hmm. um, messianism and ideas about the afterlife. Um, and I've done a little bit of work on Jewish ideas about hell and about intercession and ghost stories. And that's something I'm continuing to work on. Uh, and I hope, you know, will eventually turn into a, a, a more fleshed out um, book somewhere down the line. What I'm really spending most of my time on now is a project about animals um, that I'm tentatively calling uh, Obestly Jew, um, which is a line that's hmm. taken from Peter the Venerable, a Christian polemicist from the 12th century who reflects um, a really interesting shift that I first became aware of as I was working on this book, which is towards bestializing Jews, especially in medieval European culture. The idea that that we can dehumanize, literally dehumanize Jews through a whole set of rhetorical and scientific associations between Jews and animals. Um, And amazingly, I think it's amazing, what we find in the Jewish sources of the time is actually the exact same thing. We find more and more Hebrew texts in which Jews are describing themselves as animals, but in a positive way, and breaking down the boundaries between humanity and animality. Um, And we find this in artwork. Um, You can think about, for example, the bird's head Haggadah or other kinds of texts in which Jews depict themselves as having the heads of animals. Uh, We find it in theological writings, in halachic writings, Jewish legal writings, in mystical writings. And so I've been spending a lot of time trying to figure out why, at the very moment that Christians are trying to define Jews as beastly, Jews are almost embracing that uh, label or that or that conceptualization, but turning it around and using it to their own ends. I think there's it says something interesting about the dynamics of medieval Jewish-Christian relations, and hopefully I'll have more to say about that as the years go on. Well, we will look forward to hearing more about that. My guest has been David I. Shaivitz, the Associate Professor of History and of Jewish and Israel Studies at Northwestern University, and we've been talking about his book, A Remembrance of His Wonders, Nature and the Supernatural in Medieval Ashkenaz, from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Professor Shaivitz, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, David. It's been a real pleasure. 